Well, this morning we're going to look at three of the final four disciples listed in Matthew 10, 2 through 4. And if you've been with us, you've seen that we are working our way through Matthew's gospel. Uh, I've kind of sort of uh, excerpted this series out to really bring us through the life and testimony of the disciples. Um, it's really just a way to exposit these verses to give us better context. And as we continue on for the next uh, 18 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we're going to be more familiar with who these people are, what they're like. And so when you hear them speaking to the Lord and Him speaking to them, you'll have a better sense of who they are. Today we're going to cover James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. Now, as we progressed in the series, uh, you may have noticed as well that not only are these messages biographical, but also um, I've tried to deal with issues pertaining to their life and ministry, but also uh, I've tried to give themes, general themes uh, that kind of interwoven into their life. So it's not just straight biography. I'm trying to capture really the essence of uh, of who they are uh, in terms of, of thematic material. So let me just give you some examples. We studied the life of Simon Peter at the very beginning of the series, and we saw him as a very human person. Uh, we saw him being stubborn and duplicitous and sinful, but also very bold and excitable and loving and ultimately faithful. We looked at the life of Andrew, and we saw how he was a humble servant who specialized in being faithful in small things. Our study of James and John brought us into the study of the importance of holding fast to truth and love. We talked about the importance of truth and love together. Our study of Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew brought us into the examination of the struggle between belief and trust and ultimately demonstrated the importance of maintaining a sound confession of faith. So we talked about confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, from the beginning, we've said that this list of names in Matthew 10 is not ultimately about these men. It's not ultimately about the disciples, but about the Lord who himself calls all manner of people to follow him. These men are recipients of his divine grace and blessing. And we want to see them for who they are, and we also want to see that they point us to Jesus Christ. And so, again, today we're looking at the very last three of the faithful disciples I say faithful because next week we're going to spend one message looking at Judas Iscariot and uh, seeing some, uh, some material from him. Now, out of the gate, we note that these three disciples are probably the most obscure of all the twelve, and I want to look at those together. In our early study of the twelve, we noted that the disciples were, were generally broken up into three groups of four. Now, it, the Bible never says, okay, here's three groups of four, but when you examine the lists, and there's really four key lists in Scripture, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, when you look at the list, you see patterns of how the names are broken down. The first group, it really is always headed up by Simon Peter. His name appears first in every single list, and that first uh, quad includes Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're always in that first grouping. Philip is always the head of the second list. And always in that list is Bartholomew, uh, Thomas, and Matthew. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, is always the first name in the third list. He's always the first in the final group, along with Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, uh, along with Judas Iscariot being last in every single list. And again, we see those in Ma uh, Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts chapter 1. 
And some of the lists have variations in terms of the name and even some of the order inside of the groupings, but they're all, uh, they're all the same group of people. Now, in the group of Jesus' disciples, he calls two men who have the name James. Now, James was a very common name. There are several Jameses listed in Scripture. Even Jesus' half-brother is a man named James who writes the epistle at the, toward the end of the New Testament. That's his half-brother, uh, James. But in the list, we see that there's a distinction between uh, James, who is the brother of John, uh, the, the son of Zebedee. We looked at him a couple weeks ago. That is a different James than this James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, apart from his given name in the scriptures, we don't know anything else about this man. There's nothing else said about him. Now, it's, it has been noted that both James and Matthew, which we looked at last week, both of these men are said to be uh, the son of a man named Alphaeus. Now, that could either mean that these guys are brothers, that James and Matthew are brothers, or it could simply be coincidence that they both have fathers who are named Alphaeus. We don't know. The only other clue that we have about this man, James, comes in Mark 15, 40, uh, and it's the scene where Jesus is dying on the cross, and watching this gruesome scene is a group of women who are standing outside of of the view here. Included in this group are Mary Magdalene, a woman named Salome, who we believe is the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder, if you will. And there's another woman in that group, her name is Mary, and the text says of her that she is the mother of James the Less and of Joseph. Whoever Joseph is, we don't know. But many scholars believe that this person, James the Less, is a nickname for James the son of Alphaeus. Now, this could mean a number of things, and we don't really know exactly, but this word for less in Mark 1540 is, trans, or is the, word, the Greek word uh, micros, which is where we get our word micro. Uh, it could refer to his smallness in size. He could have been a very small framed person. It could also refer uh, to uh, his youth, that he was very young, and maybe the younger of all of the guys in the group of the apostles. Or it could have just meant uh, a reference to his prominence, that the other James was more prominent. Everybody knows who that guy is, but not as much as this other guy. They don't know him as much. But we don't really know exactly what this less is referring to. But being nicknamed, really, Little James could have uh, been uh, a comparison to this other James or it could have had to do with his obscurity. Uh, Heaven only knows the details of this. The next disciple, really, is a man with three names. He's got three names in Scripture. Both Matthew and Mark, which is the text we're working out of primarily, call him Thaddeus. Thaddeus. However, Luke, when he writes his Gospel, as well as the book of Acts, refer to him as Judas, the son of James. Now, by all rights, that is his first name. That is his given name. It's Judas. Again, Judas is a very common name, and usually it's shortened to Jude. So the epistle of Jude at the end of the Bible there, that's the same root name as Judas. Uh, obviously, uh, gospel writer, or, or the scholars believe that when the gospel writers are getting to the end of their accounts, and they started to realize the history of what they're talking about, they didn't want to confuse Judas Iscariot with anybody else named Judas, uh, even though that's probably why the epistle of Jude is rightly not called the epistle of Judas, because that would be very confusing for people. So they separate the two, Judas Iscariot and this other Judas, which is why they believe that other names were used for this man so as to not confuse him. 
But we believe that the name Thaddeus was possibly a nickname. The, the name itself, Thaddeus, could be translated beloved. It could have been just a, a short pet name for him, that he was the beloved uh, disciple. And I'm sure John would have something to say about that, because he claims to be the disciple that Jesus loved. But no, Thaddeus is in the running now. And so uh, the two of them are neck and neck with who is loved the most, and whatever it may be. But it also, this name Thaddeus, also refers, this is very interesting, also refers uh, to the baby of the family. Literally, it has to do with the last child to be nursed. Uh, literally, the, the, the phrase is breast child, the last one to be weaned, essentially. So that could have something to do with it. Maybe he was also the younger or one of the younger of the apostles. Maybe he was the most childlike in his faith, uh, which could be interesting. Maybe he was the most cared for by the group. We don't really know. Another name that appears in scriptural history, in the authorized version, which is also called the King James, uh, it refers to him as Labaius. Labaius, it's a different name. And Labaius could be translated, it's derived from the word for heart. So some have suggested that his nickname refers either to his loving nature, his generous nature, or even his courageous nature, because that would have been a nickname. Now, that's very interesting, and is this an accurate or a fair composite of this man, Thaddeus or Labaius, Judas, the son of James? Well, I want to look at Scripture here, so turn with me to John chapter 14, because we do see this man show up in gospel history. John chapter 14. Now, the events of John 13 through 17... So chapter 13 through 17 brings us into the upper room discourse. This is the final night before Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to be crucified on the cross uh, after a, a botched trial and a Roman persecution. In this discourse, however, the leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus is seeking to both instruct the disciples and also to comfort them. You read the words in these uh, chapters, and there, you see both. You see him teaching, do a lot of, a lot of theological teaching. He's given the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's, he's doing this high priestly prayer. He's doing a lot of things in these final chapters. Chapter 13, very famously, he tells them to love one another. This is a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. He says, by doing so, the world will see that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So he's doing a lot of didactic teaching but he's also encouraging them and strengthening them because he knows that the next 24 hours, the next 48, the next 72 hours are going to be very, very difficult for them. And so he does that kind of instruction and comfort as well. But the beginning of chapter 14, he tells the disciples that he's planning to go away, but he's going to return for them. He's going to come back for them. Thomas remarks, and we looked at this last week, Thomas tells them, he says, we don't know the way that you're going. How are we going to know how to get to where you are? He says, in response to questioning about the way, verse 6, Jesus says, well, I am the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. And then Philip pipes up right after that, and he's asking for them to be able to see God the Father. Show us the Father, and it's going to be enough for us. To which Jesus responds in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now he's not talking about conflating their natures. Rather, he's talking about the unity that the Son has with the Father. We understand that doctrinally, 
Jesus is God in every possible sense. He is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. They're of the same essence as the creeds say. So we understand that this is what Jesus is talking about, that there is complete unity with the Father. He says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't go looking for some other God when you talk to me. That's essentially the sentiment. But this is where we've, where we've seen the intersection of the disciples uh, talking with Jesus and asking questions and interacting with him. But in verse 16 now, we're kind of moving ahead. Verse 16, Jesus pledges even more comfort for the disciples, that they are no doubt troubled at the thought, at the thought of losing their master. It bothers them, the idea of Jesus going away and leaving them behind. And so we pick this up in John chapter 14, starting in verse 16. Jesus tells them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because he does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. These are really remarkable words from Jesus. He tells them of the reality that they, that they, they never thought this to be possible. What am I talking about? Well, for years, Israel's connection to God was veiled and distant. God always appeared over there. and he, you know, Moses saw him through the cleft of the rock and veiled and sort of hidden. And even the glory that he experienced was too much for the Israelites to bear. He appeared to them in the, in the pillar of fire and smoke. And then later on, the glory uh, dwelled above the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, above the wings of the cherubim, and it was inside the Holy of Holies, and only a priest, the high priest, could go in once a year to behold this site, even though that was veiled. And so, again, Israel's history with God was that of distance and veiled and sort of hidden. For the Jews, that relationship, the intimate, close relationship with God, seemed in many ways impossible. But then Jesus comes. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the incarnate Word of God. That He becomes flesh and dwells among them. So no longer glory cloud that they can't get access to. Now the glory has been incarnated into a person who's able to walk around on the earth and talk and have dinner and have conversation and hug and hold and kiss they can now see Him and behold Him, the very person of God residing on earth, walking among His creation. That reality is mind-blowing for all of us, but even more so for the Israelites who were so used to dealing with God on such distant terms. So the doctrine of the incarnation is awe-inspiring. That now believers could actually see Him and hear Him speaking and touch Him and hold Him. I'm oftentimes, personally, just biographically or autobiographically, I'm oftentimes jealous of the Apostle John. 
I truly am the one whom Jesus loved because at the Lord's Supper, the last supper here, he's able to recline at the table and rest his head backwards on the chest of Jesus, so close, no doubt, that he could hear the beating heart of Christ through his chest. I long for that, and I would imagine you do as well, to be so close to hear the heartbeat of my Lord. That was John. He experienced that. It's a marvelous reality. But now, Jesus, believe it or not, if all that was too, grand, uh, too, too gr- amazing for you, I was going to use the word grandeur and use that in some kind of an adjective, that's the trouble with preaching. As you try to take all these glorious realities and put it into English language, it's impossible. Now, now this is a greater reality for them. Because not only is the reality of God becoming man just so hard for us to understand, but now there's an even greater reality. Jesus tells the disciples he's going to ask the Father to send them another helper. Another helper. See, Jesus has already occupied this role of helper and counselor and paraclete. He goes before the disciples and encourages them and helps them and leads them, rebukes them and chastens them, but also lifts them up and exhorts them. But now God is going to send to them another helper. Who is this going to be? Jesus says it's going to be the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Spirit of Truth. And they would come to later realize that at regeneration, when they become born again and have a new heart, a new nature, a new spirit within them, that the Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, is going to come and indwell them, to take up residence inside of them. And that reality is so marvelous. He says already here that the Spirit abides with you. He says, but soon, mark this, folks, He will be in you. So, Old Covenant, God is distant. He's seen from afar. He's over there. He's veiled. You can't get to Him. Then in the Incarnation, Christ comes and dwells with us and brings with Him the Spirit. And now there's coming a day when the, the Spirit of the Lord is going to indwell inside of you. As a Christian. And you're going to know intimacy in a way that no one in human history has ever known before. We get jealous about, of the disciples who actually got to spend time with Jesus and see Him. And we say, oh, if I could just see Him, my faith would grow. Guess what? Most people who actually interacted with Jesus rejected Him. And killed Him. So we get to experience an intimacy with God that the disciples had only dreamed of. And one day actually came to fruition. That the Spirit of God would be in His people. And at Pentecost and after Pentecost, the Spirit began to indwell believers, starting with these disciples. And He has not stopped doing this, and nor will He stop doing this until the end of days. So when a person becomes a new creation, when they hear the Gospel, and God regenerates them, and gives them a new heart and a new mind, they get to think new thoughts, suddenly something happens. And I don't know when it happens, how it happens, all the conditions around it. It's a mysterious thing. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, in the way that the wind blows, you can't see where it's coming, where it's going. Goes, the Spirit's kind of like that. You don't really know how it's all going to happen, but you know when it does happen. Now for the disciples, they began to speak in tongues and do signs and wonders. That is not the regulative experience of most people today. What happens, your mind begins to change. Your heart begins to change. The things you say, the things you think, the things you believe. Your affections for Christ. Your desire for the body of Christ. Your interest in the Word of God. 
Everything about you changes and it's evidence that the Spirit of God is now indwelling in you. And He begins to strive with you and chasten you and convict you of sin, but also encourage your heart and give you peace and motivate you. The Bible says that at the New Covenant, God, through His Spirit, will cause you to walk in His ways. You begin to obey, not because you're muscling your way through, but because the Spirit of God in you is motivating you and you are joining Him in this effort to grow in Christ-likeness. It's through this indwelling of the Spirit that Jesus can say in verses 18 and 19, I will not leave you as orphans. They were so worried He was going to leave and never come back. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He says, I'm going to come to you. Now, what he was referring to was his return before the ascension, but there's a greater way that Jesus comes, and that's through the ministry of the Spirit. He says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. The world's going to think I'm gone. But you will see me because I live, and you will live also. So there's a greater reality going on here. For you and I, for those who love Christ and know Christ, there is a closeness to Jesus even though he has not been visibly seen on this planet in over 2,000 years, the testimony of every Christian believer is he's alive and he's living and I know him. You can say with confidence, I know Jesus Christ. I'm getting to know him more every day. I read his word. I listen to my conscience informed by the scriptures. I hear his voice in my heart affirming what is his will, what is true. I know Jesus Christ and I know he lives and I know I'm going to see him again. This is the testimony that he's talking about here. Because of the Spirit, believers will know God personally and even experientially. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we're children of God. This involves our adoption by God. We become His children. So not only are we regenerated and sealed and indwelled and adopted, but our heart begins to change. We obey God, which leads to verse 21. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. He's not talking about muscling your way into God's graces by doing good deeds and keeping commandments. He's saying the one who knows me, the one who loves me, the one who has my spirit, He's the one or she's the one. They're the ones that keep my commands out of love for the Father and desire for intimacy with God and desire to please Him and glorify Him. We're not law keepers and grace earners. We are the recipients of divine grace and in response of a thankful heart, we desire to glorify Him. It's the very core of who we are. And so the Spirit indwells us. He testifies to our adoption. He causes us to obey God, which proves God's love for us and our love for Him. And Jesus says in this way, He will disclose Himself to us. So just to recap, the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, testifies to the people of God that we belong to God because of the Son of God. Did you get all that? This is how we know Him. He discloses Himself to us and to countless believers even in the world today. Now, at this point, the disciples are still confused. Wouldn't you be if you were hearing this for the first time? They don't understand what he's talking about. What do you mean the Spirit's going to dwell inside of us? 
What are you talking about? Disclosing us, disclosing yourself to us in this way? What are you talking about? And then Thaddeus, this beloved man, Thaddeus, James, or Judas, the son of James, speaks up in verse 22. And John here notes Judas, not Iscariot. Notice that he puts that in there as well. Judas, not Iscariot, says to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? What do you mean, Lord? This is an earnest question, by the way. And we note this because not only is it not an attack on any kind of thing he said, he's just really asking a question. Jesus doesn't rebuke him the way he rebukes other people. He rebukes Philip, he rebukes uh, Thomas, he rebukes Peter a lot, more than Peter is probably comfortable with. He doesn't rebuke Thaddeus or Judas at this point. He simply answers the question. The essence of the question has to do with the revelation of the Messiah. He really he wants to know. Again, all of Israel was waiting for Messiah to come and to overthrow Rome and establish Jesus or the Messiah as king. So Israel's waiting for this conquering king to come in power and glory and to dominate So they were waiting for the revelation, for the disclosing of the Messiah to come, and they're waiting for this dominant world ruler. Yet Jesus is not going to reveal himself in this way at first. The second coming of Christ, which so much of the New Testament and even the Old Testament talks about this second coming of Christ where Jesus will return in that way, in dominance and power and glory and might to subject all the nations under his foot, That day is coming, but that's not the way that he reveals himself here. When he comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and they're saying, Hosanna, save now, save now, when he's marching in, they think he's coming to overthrow. He's coming to die. He's coming to give his life as a ransom, as a payment, as an atonement for sin. He is the spotless lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. The world's going to see him die for sins and the church is going to experience the reality of knowing him through the fellowship of the Spirit. But again, they don't understand what he's talking about. What this reveals to us is that this beloved Judas of James and his earnest desire is longing to see Christ revealed to the world. Lord, what do you mean you're going to disclose yourself to us but not to the world? Didn't you come to tell the world you're here? We believe you're the Messiah. So Messiah is supposed to reveal himself to everybody. We're just the first ones, right? And Jesus is saying, not exactly. Not quite. See, Jesus is more concerned with the unity and the intimacy of his people with the Father. He came that we might know God the Father. Look at how he answers in verses 23 to 27. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, look at how he says we, he's talking about the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See this connection of the heart being transformed by the ministry of the Spirit, being informed by the Scriptures? 
by the Word of God. And then he says in verse 27, Peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. I'm not doing this the way that they do it. He says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Believers, do yourself a favor when you go home. Write verse 27 down on a note card and stick it in front of your face for the rest of the year. Have peace. Be comforted. Don't let your heart grow troubled. I'll tell you, that is my propensity. I have a PhD in worrying about things in the world. I don't put it on my wall. I don't want to brag about it, but I, I have one. No, but don't, don't we consume ourselves with anxiety and fear? But Jesus has an antidote to this, and he's telling his disciples who are also afraid, also fearful, also anxious. He says, I'm going to give you peace. Do not let your heart be troubled. Be encouraged. Here we see the desire of Christ for His followers to know Him and love Him and obey Him to experience the true unity of the Spirit. There's a this settled peace and a unity and a love here. And this is the reality that transcends all other earthly realities. How humans can be united with God and united with one another. We can actually have genuine, true unity with God the Father through the Son and through the Spirit, we can have genuine unity with one another. We can have a connection that transcends everything else. But it only comes by way of the Spirit. And we're going to see this illustrated vividly through the testimony of our next disciple. Our next disciple, the 11th in the list, is this man, Simon the Zealot. And you're going to see why I've made this connection in just a second here. Simon the Zealot of his origin, of his calling, of his ministry. Again, we know, we know nothing about it. All we know about Simon is something of his former life. The scripture says that he was a zealot. According to Jewish historian Josephus, there were four basic political parties in Israel in this time, the time of Jesus. The first party was the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, they were the law keepers. They were essentially Jewish fundamentalists. They, they were addicted to holding everything to the law, and they even had a practice of what they called building a fence around the law, where they created a, a supplementary law that went around the, the major laws. So as long as you kept these outer laws, you could be sure you wouldn't break the, the big law. But they were holding people to the secondary law just as stringently as the main law of God. And so Jesus actually attacks them for these extra man-made laws that don't do anything. But they were addicted to law-keeping. They were the fundamentalists, if you will. The second group was known as the Sadducees. Essentially, they were the religious liberals of the day. And they oftentimes would spar with the Pharisees, kind of two sides of a similar coin. They denied much of the spiritual. They denied the resurrection. They only held to certain kinds of books of the Bible. Now, both of these parties were politically minded. So if you were a, a Pharisee or a Sadducee, they were trying to advance the Jewish cause by negotiating with Rome and really currying favor. So they were all politicians trying to advance Judaism through sort of their influence in these other means. This third group comes into play known as the Essenes, or Essenes, if you want to pronounce it that way. They rejected this political climate. They were sort of recluses. 
They were the hermits of the day. They would go and, and study in the desert. They would hide out in the desert. They were ascetics. They would you know, punish themselves and treat themselves really harshly. And they would just focus. They were like monks, really, studying the Word of God and being really extreme. So they, they were the separatists of the group. So you have the political Pharisees and Sadducees, and then you had the separatists that believed they could just kind of sneak away and live over there. Then there was a fourth group, a fourth group in this conglomeration. This fourth group was known as the Zealots, and they went in the opposite direction of the Essenes, of the separatists. The Zealots were Jewish nationalists. They advocated Jewish supremacy and the overthrow of all of Israel's oppressors by force. This group developed during the second century B.C. under the guerrilla campaign of a man named Judas Maccabeus. Now, even in the course of Jewish history, Judas, Judas Maccabeus is a, is a hero. I mean, he, he was a, sort of this robust and powerful Jewish leader who overthrew and attacked and, and stood up against the Greeks and their occupation. And so there was, you could read about the Maccabean Revolution in First and Second Maccabees. It's not inspired scripture, but it's helpful history for us to read. And so that's where the origin of this sort of powerhouse of of Jewish warfare came through this man of Judas Maccabeus and the Zealots. Now the Zealots of Jesus' day were known really as extreme and devoted, even unto death. Josephus, again the historian, refers to them as dagger men. He nicknamed them dagger men because of their propensity to assassinate Roman officials. These men were known to keeping knives and little tiny small swords hidden in their cloaks and they would sneak up behind an unsuspecting Roman official and they would attack them and run away and they would assassinate leaders. I want to read to you some of what Josephus says about this group. This is the zealots, by the way. They have an inviolable attachment to liberty. They say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. They also do not value dying any kind of death, nor indeed do they heed the deaths of their relatives and friends, nor can any such fear make any of them call, excuse me, make them call any man Lord. So they didn't care how they died. It didn't really make a difference to them. If somebody in their association or their friends or their family, if they died, it didn't really have any kind of bearing on them. And they were emphatic on calling no one Lord. Now this mattered in this culture because the the main credo for all Roman citizens is that Caesar is Lord. Now we understand that that is in contrast to Christianity declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is why the first three centuries of Christian history, so many of us were martyred because we refused to say that Jesus, or excuse me, that Caesar is Lord. But the same thing goes with the zealots. They refused to acknowledge that anyone was Lord except the Lord God. And so this is this sort of uh, extreme uh, Jewish nationalistic fervor of the zealots, and that's Simon. Simon was this kind of a man. And as a zealot, Simon would have hated everything having to do with the Roman occupation. And he would have had disdain for those who compromised with Rome. Now this becomes all the more interesting when you consider who else is ministering alongside Jesus in this group of 12 disciples. Now note this, of all the disciples that are listed in all the lists of the names, only two names are given that note their previous occupation or affiliation. So not son of so-and-so or things like that, but what they did prior to, or what they were connected to prior to. Only two names are connected to their former life. Simon the Zealot 
and Matthew, the tax collector. Now, to recap this, the tax collectors were Jews who sold out their own people to the Romans for money. The zealots were Jewish nationalists who killed Romans and their counterparts. And Jesus had both of these men in his small, intimate group of followers. Can you imagine what dinner was like in this kind of a group? So, Matthew, what did you do before you came to Christ? Well, Simon, let me tell you about it. Jesus called both of these men out of their former lives to come and follow him. These two parties, these two groups, allegiance to Rome at the, at the betrayal of your own people, and the nationalistic zeal of, of the Judaistic religion, these two extremes could not be farther apart even more so diametrically opposed than Jew and Gentile, because that was just kind of a general hatred. This was a a fervent hatred, certainly of Simon toward Matthew. It certainly would have been. And yet we read that Matthew, when he gets called, he gets up and leaves his tax office immediately to follow Jesus and never return. And Simon would have done likewise. He would have thrown away his dagger to follow Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. What brings enemies together in an uncommon unity? How is peace and forgiveness possible? Well, if you don't already know by now, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can bring us all together. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll see a case study of this. Ephesians chapter 2. One of the greatest relational obstacles to overcome in the early church, as I mentioned just a second ago, was this chasm between the Jews and the Gentiles. But to the the surprise of the Jews, the Gentiles were actually welcomed into the church by faith in Jesus Christ. And so much so that Paul actually fights for them and for their justification in his letter to the Galatians. You read Galatians, it's all about how we're justified by faith apart from works of the law and the whole under, undercurrent and the whole backstory of Galatians is this sort of uber-nationalistic zeal of the party of the circumcision who insisted that the Gentiles had to become like Jews in order to have their faith. And Paul is fighting fervently against that. But in Ephesians, Paul is also dealing with division. He's dealing with this division between Jews and Gentiles, which is reconciled and repaired in Christ Jesus. So I'm in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Paul tells the church, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law and the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, and it having put to death Uh, excuse me, put to death the enmity. 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. And through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. See, through Jesus Christ, strangers are brought near. Divisions are healed. War and hatred are abolished. Enemies are reconciled. We are no longer a divided people. In the body of Christ, we are united together. And this is what unites Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. This is how they could enjoy unity together in the same camp. They shared a mutual love for the Lord. They experienced forgiveness for their former sins. They even partook of the same spirit. The same spirit who later indwelled them is the spirit who indwells us as well. Ever think about that? That the Spirit of God who indwells you as a Christian believer is the same Spirit that has indwelled every single Christian in history. All the way through the Reformation, all the way through the early church, Augustine, all those people, all the way to the apostles, even the first one to be indwelled, we have the same Spirit as the Apostle Paul and beyond. Same Spirit, same unity cross-cultural, ethnic lines, doesn't make a bit of difference. All of us are united in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been hurt by people in the church? Have you ever experienced maybe a, a predisposition to not like certain people already? I know I've heard stories about it, certainly. People walk in and you look around and you oh, that person's at this church? Great. Well, I'll sit on that side of the room. Ever, ever, I mean, have you ever experienced something like that? Or you walk into some, I go to pastor's conferences or whatever like that, and maybe some notable person has caused trouble, and you look and you see him, he's there, and you're like, oh, jeez, that guy's here. All right, well, you know, and there's a predisposition because of, of wars and fighting and enmity and whatever it may be. Let me ask you another question. This is, this is relevant to even today. And I want you to think about this. There's a lot of cars in the parking lot. Could a car with a Joe Biden bumper sticker and a truck with a Trump sticker park in the same church lot? And furthermore, could they come in and enjoy the same kind of unity and fellowship in the body of Christ here? The answer is yes, if they cast off their political identities and knelt together at the cross of Christ. I'll tell you, right now we are polarized beyond belief. And every single cultural commentator is trying to give us tools and ideas about how to bridge the gap while, the, while other people, cultural commentators, are talking about how we're so divided. Now, I want to be clear, there are reasons for division. There are viable reasons to not accept certain arguments and certain political persuasions right now. 
There's, there's moral arguments. There are sociological arguments. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we come together and we have this predisposed idea that because they believe or adhere to X, they're now my enemy. That is not of Christ. Christ unifies people together. Now again, you cannot come with something else in your back pocket and say, well, I belong to such and such first. No, if you're in Christ, you belong to Jesus first. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. But when people come together in the name of Christ, there is a unity. There is an alliance. There is a love there. You want to know how we're going to heal national division? Yesterday was the anniversary of 9-11. People have lots of ideas about how we're going to heal things. How we're going to find peace in a climate that is bent on destroying each other. You want to know how we're going to get peace? Ephesians 2.14 Christ, He Himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. You want to change the country? Preach the gospel. Bear witness to Christ. Go to a person you have nothing in common with who would otherwise hate your guts and say, I'm here in the name of Jesus Christ to love you. I don't agree with some of the things you're saying, but guess what? We don't, we don't have to agree, but let me tell you where we can agree. You and I are both sinners in the eyes of God. We both need forgiveness. We both need the righteousness of Christ given to us and imputed and credited to us. We both need forgiveness for who we have been prior to all of this. We both need Jesus Christ. And guess what? I found forgiveness in Christ because I am a sinner. Let me tell you how you can find forgiveness with Him as well. Jesus is the one who changes people. He Himself is our peace. That Christ gave Himself the perfect sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Egregious sins. Terrible sins. Sins of sexual immorality and adultery. Idolatry. Zealotry. People who kill each other for political reasons. Murder. All kinds of genocide. Christ can forgive and heal from any of these sins because He's able. We don't know how James, the son of Alphaeus, died. According to tradition, Thaddeus took the gospel north to Mesopotamia where he was clubbed to death for his faith. And as far as Simon the Zealot's concerned, it's believed that he made as far as the British Isles. He went north. We don't know how he died, but we know he died for the gospel. But these men would have been enemies and strangers apart from Jesus, and many of them were. Many of these men were enemies. But they were made into friends and even brothers in the Lord. And their unity, again, Ephesians 2.20, what is the foundation for all of this? Now, the cornerstone is Christ. He is the rock-solid foundation at its core. But what are we building on? The testimony of the faith of these disciples. Read Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is all this cloud of witnesses that bear witness to the, the faith and the love of Christ. They are the foundations, the apostles and the prophets 
our unity is based on what they have for unity, which is based on Christ. So the same love and the same unity and the same faith that could bring Matthew and Simon together in fellowship and in love is the same unity and faith that's going to bring people here together. Let us be arbiters of truth and love and peace. Not of division. Not of hatred. That's the only way that communities and towns and the state and and beyond is going to find true peace. Because in the end, and let me tell you this, nations come and go. World empires come and go. The only institution given by God that has survived for 20 centuries is the church of Jesus Christ. We will persevere. We will survive. And He's going to continue to build this church until He comes. He's promised to do it. And so if that's us, what do we do to maintain unity and love and truth? We fight for the Gospel. We hold these tensions of truth and love together. And we break down whatever other things would hinder us. And we love each other in spirit and truth. Again, there is no unity without truth. You must have truth. But in the truth of the Gospel... Beloved, we have unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful to you, Lord, that even though the lives of these men are pretty silent, there's not much about them specifically. But God, the fact that you've called them and who they are and the questions that they asked and the background of where they've come from and the testimony of what they hold, the apostles' teaching that all of these men taught your doctrine and all of these men are responsible for carrying forth your gospel, the same gospel we have today. So Lord, these men are faithful witnesses to you and we're grateful for them that even though history might not remember much about them, you know them and you've loved them and because you have loved them, we love them. Lord, it just feels so red hot these days. It feels so heavy. So much anguish and so many tears. So many trials and so much dissension, Lord. And God, I pray. I pray for our leaders on every level. I pray for the divisions that are existent here. I pray for truth and justice and righteousness to reign I pray for your judgment against any ideology, any philosophy, any faction that would destroy the fabric of society, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your gospel goes forward. And no matter what happens in the world, I pray that you would build us up in faith, in truth, and in peace. And Father, I know, based on the morality and the ethics that are taught to us in the Scriptures, that we are not to simply... Step aside from some of these discussions, Lord. I I believe that you want us to be bearers of truth. But God, as we deal with each other, as we have each other in our homes, as we talk to each other, as we engage online, when we speak to each other about things, Lord, I pray earnestly that you would help us to have grace for one another, to be patient with each other, 
to love one another, and even with the backgrounds that some of us have, Lord, that we would bear with each other and do so in kindness and sincerity. Lord, help us to follow the model of others that have gone before us, Lord, to love one another, because you told the disciples that you are to love one another, and by doing so, to prove that we belong to you. So, Lord, I pray that in our love, we would demonstrate to the world, to the watching, unbelieving world, that we belong to you, the sovereign Lord of the universe. We thank you for the grace that we have in Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.